You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down the threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. Before we jump in here, let's establish, uh, are you an R-Evil guy or are you an R-Evil guy? It's, I'm, I'm a Revil guy, and above all, right. all, above all, I am not a sudden Okibi guy. That's Rob Pantazopoulos. He's a senior security researcher and malware reverse engineer at SecureWorks. The research we're discussing today is titled, R-Evil Development Adds Confidence About Gold Southfield Reemergence." The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. With families like Revil um, that we determine uh, rise to the level of that we need to do tracking on them, uh, we set up typically a number of different tripwires, if you will. Uh, so we will identify samples, and if those samples have any different types of uh, variations in them um, or unique aspects of them. So if there's a new version value within the binary, if there's a new configuration element, uh, so on and so forth, we will set up notifications. Uh, so we'll get alerted to when we, we find those. Um, we also do uh, open source monitoring. Um, and that is actually, in this case, how we came across the sample. Uh, there was a Twitter post by uh, the director of malware research over at Avast, um, a vast Jakob, Jacob, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his name, uh, mm. but he had notified uh, the good people uh, on Twitter that they had identified a new uh, Revil sample, or what they thought to be a Revil sample. Um, and one of the interesting quirks about it was that it wasn't actually encrypting files. Um, so they weren't quite positive. Uh, it seemed like they weren't quite positive of what uh, the sample was. So as soon as we saw that, 
pulled down the sample and now because we've been tracking Revol since uh, since it hit the scene, uh, we had all types of research stored up on it, including uh, every single version or every single variant that we've come across, we've analyzed, documented. Uh, so one of the first things that we did was pulled up one of the most recent analysis of version 2.808 that we had done back in October uh, and did a side-by-side -side comparison uh, of, of the old sample in, in this new sample uh, within Ida Pro. Uh, and we found that basically the decompiled pseudocode was almost exactly the same. There were some new features which we had uh, called out, but ultimately the core of the code uh, was, was nearly identical. There's other aspects of it as well, such as there's a string format uh, that it uses. We call uh, the stats JSON, um, mm. which contains uh, things like the real version information, uh, information that about the uh, the computer that is uh, obtained at runtime, information about the encryption session uh, is placed inside this this JSON data structure, and that information is actually ultimately sent back to the uh, was sent back to the uh, the threat actor. Uh, so that was there as well. So that was really kind of like the the absolute yes this is revol well give us a little bit of the background history here i mean we're, we're talking about two groups we've got revol and then we've got gold southfield and and i guess what we're getting at here is you know is that a distinction without a difference what's the backstory Sure. So Gold Saltfield is the name of the threat group that runs the ransomware as a service offering, leveraging Revol ransomware. Uh, so Revol really is the software used by the Gold Saltfield threat group. I see. And so let's dig into some of the specifics here of some of the, the changes that you all were tracking in these most recent samples. Can you take us through some of the highlights? Yeah, sure. So, um, the sample shared by Jakob uh, actually didn't contain much of interest, but one of the first things that we did once we realized that, yes, this is Revol, um, we tried to find uh, aspects of that code uh, to try to then perform retro hunts within VirusTotal to uh, maybe find other samples that had not yet been identified. Uh, and sure enough, we had found, we had hit on a sample uh, from March 11th of this year, 2022, that nobody else had reported on. Uh, so we retrieved that sample, we did analysis of that sample, and that sample actually contained a lot of the new features that you you see in the report that we published. Uh, and for some reason that wasn't in the sample that Jakob um, had, had published. I don't exactly know why uh, Jakob's sample was actually compiled later on. Uh, that uh, sample was compiled on, uh, I think it was March or uh, April 12th. Uh, so this was roughly a full month before, but contained uh, the older sample contained more uh, newer features. So, so once we saw that, we, we, we really kind of put our full focus into analyzing that, that sample. One of the first features uh, that we, we found was that there was an inclusion of a new command line argument, dash T. Now, when we submitted this sample initially to our sandbox, it didn't do anything. Uh, but then once we began analyzing it, we realized that this dash T expected to receive some type of uh, token value that it then used for decoding sh uh, strings at runtime. Uh, and these strings were critical to the success of its execution because it decoded strings such as like kernel32.dll and all the different function names that it would be dynamically uh, importing at runtime that were critical to its execution. So if you didn't have the appropriate value, it just wouldn't run at all. The token 
used here uh, was implemented within all of the string to code operations. What we wanted to do is in order to find out what the token was, we loaded the old sample up that didn't have the string decoding logic into IDA Pro, and we compared it to the, the new code that was using the string decode logic. And one of the values that this token was being applied to was the key length for the encrypted string. All right. Mm. So in, in, in Revol, um, in order to, the, the strings used by Revol are encrypted, uh, using RC4. Um, and they're stored. They have the key, which is then immediately followed by the, the actual encrypted string. And the string decrypt function has, you know, the location of the decryption key, the length of the decryption key, the location of the encrypted string, and the length of the decryption string. So that's how it knows, all right, here's the start and end of the key. Here's the start and end of the uh, encrypted string. And this is when it goes to decrypt it, that's how it kind of extracts that information out. So in this new sample, the, the, of the, those four values, the encrypted, uh, key, or the, the key length was encoded. And then the address of the encrypted string was encoded. So they did that with the intention to make it impossible to figure out what the actual full key and what the actual full encrypted string was. The problem was, is that the, so the way that they do the encoding is that this token value that you pass on the command line has an XOR operation applied to another four byte value. Um, and in this case, the token value was XORed with the hex value 2F9BODCA. Now, fortunately, because the old version didn't have this encoding applied and they also didn't change any of the code around there, we knew that the string being decrypted at that location had a key length of 12 bytes. So we knew that whatever value was passed in the token field was XORed with this 2FB90DCA equals the integer 12. So those are kind of like the, now we have kind of the pieces that we need in order to determine what the token value is. So the second bit of information that's important to know is for uh, what, what is XOR, right? The XOR is a mathematical bitwise operation. And the interesting bit of information is that anytime you XOR a value with itself, the resulting value is null or, you know, hex zero, zero. So the integer value 12 only takes up a single byte. Uh, however, the code allocates this value within a four byte memory allocation, which is padded by null bytes. So the first three bytes of this four byte allocation are nulls. So we can apply that logic to say when, when whatever this token is XORed with the, the 2F9B0DCA, if the result of that operation, the first three bytes are null bytes, then the first three bytes of that token must be the 2F9B0D. So now instead of having to figure out like maybe brute force you know, all four bytes and trying to find the appropriate value, all we really have to do is brute force that last byte to see what XORed by, you know, the hex value CA equals the integer 12, uh, which is a really fast operation that we could do within like a Python script. Uh, and it turns out that the hex value C6 XORed by the hex value CA equals the integer 12. So that means that the, the expected token 
past the command line was the hex value 2F9B0DC6 or the integer 79869075. So I know that was a, a long kind of technical explanation, but that was really, for me, that was really interesting that they made a little bit of a, a mistake there in their encoding routine. It was supposed to be this really complicated thing to prevent people from running their malware within sandboxes or performing analysis on it. Um, but it took, you know, a few minutes of us doing this analysis to determine what the key was. And then we re-ran it through our sandbox. We applied it. We provided the appropriate token value and then boom, it, it fully executed. Must have been quite gratifying to, you know, when faced with this attempt from them at obfuscation to be able to, to unpack it and figure it out, uh, you know, so quickly. Yeah, um, I mean, I feel like that's why a lot of um, our researchers, security researchers do what they do, because it's, it's just a constant puzzle. Um, so this was kind of figuring out one of those puzzles, and then it's kind of on to the next one. Yeah. Well, what are some of the other things that you all noticed here, uh, things that uh, were of interest to you? Sure. So um, the second thing that I found really interesting was the inclusion of a new configuration element, the ACCS configuration element. Now, we had identified a new sample back in October of 2021. This was after the uh, they had been, uh, the, the takedown, uh, Western law enforcement had performed a takedown uh, of uh, Gold Salt Fields infrastructure. Uh, mm. So this sample was identified after that had occurred, which is what kind of, gave us, piqued our interest. This new sample, there was, we didn't publish anything publicly about that, but this sample had contained this ACCS configuration element, but it didn't contain any values. It was just kind of an empty array. Uh, But through reverse engineering, we knew that it was, it played a role in the encryption of uh, remote resources, such as like map drives that would try to authenticate to these remote resources using whatever credentials were contained within this ACCS configuration element. But at that time, it, it was, there was speculation as far as what type of credentials would be contained within there. Um, would it be kind of generic like admin password or, you know, admin one, welcome one, two, three, and it would just be like an opportunistic brute force type of credentials? Or would it be more targeted so the malware could operate a lot faster? Uh, targeted credentials that may be obtained through initial um, compromise of their network. You know, they try to, you know, obtain as many username and passwords as they can from that network. And then when they deploy Revol, Revol is already packaged with with um, the credentials that are for that environment so they can kind of get maximum impact from an encryption standpoint. The sample that we identified, the, the March um, uh, 2022 sample, actually had credentials stored within it. Uh, and they were targeted credentials. So that kind of answered that question that we had of what kind of credentials would be stored within there. And, and it, it, it turns out to be targeted credentials. One, I guess, unfortunate side effect of this is that because they're targeted credentials, now if these uh, samples uh, get released into the wild, it may be easy for other people to you know, figure out that you were compromised uh, and infected with Revo ransomware uh, even though that information may not have been made public. Oh, that's interesting. One of the things that caught my eye, you know, uh, these ransomware groups, uh, I guess, famously have um, restricted their operations, you know, to not uh, not affect uh, what we presume is their own homeland. 
Uh, but in the some of the things you examined here, they had uh, deactivated that that region check. Yeah, that that's definitely an interesting change, um, and we're not one hundred percent sure of exactly why that is. Um, we know why they implemented it to begin with, right? They don't want to bring heat upon themselves by basically friendly fire. Right. But why they removed it, um, it w- was a curious move. Um, there was definitely a lot of turmoil, if you will, um, around that time. The, it was initially removed in uh, that October time frame, uh, and that was roughly when the, you know the takedowns had occurred, and then you know ramping up of with tensions with Russia and, and some of the Ukraine stuff going on. Uh, so th- there's there's a lot. There's a lot that was happening around this time frame, but nothing really stands out as to why they did it. So what are the take-homes for you? As you look at the the changes that you and your colleagues tracked here, uh, what do you take away from it? So in the past, when we've seen this kind of activity, um, meaning when we've seen multiple new samples without a new version value, uh, multiple changes between the samples, uh, it was typically indicative of, you know, we could expect a new sample uh, or a new official version to be released uh, typically within uh, a month to two months is what we've seen. That has yet to play out. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, so what we published our public blog on May 9th in the last actual activity that we've seen from Gold Southfield was on May 6th. So the, the last victim published their leak site was on May 3rd. And the last sample that we have was compiled on May 6th. Uh, and six, since then, we haven't heard anything. We're, we're not quite sure on what to expect for the next steps. There's, there's many different scenarios that could play out. But certainly we're, we're going to be ever vigilant and you know, try to keep on top of this. Our thanks to Rob Pantazopoulos from SecureWorks for joining us. The research is titled, Our Evil Development Adds Confidence About Gold Southfield Reemergence. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Rachel Gelfin, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, 
Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. <laughs>